So close the, 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 the laptop and then turn around and engage people. Is there something else that you're concerned about? What else were you concerned about? Do you understand the process? Or if there's something that needs more explanation, such as, you know, a CAT scan, MRI, del- delays, whatever it is, address it once you're done with the computer and close the computer. But you have to turn around and at that point engage the patient and their family. How do we equip healthcare professionals with the necessary knowledge, tools, and skills to improve both the patient experience and the provider experience? Let's talk all about it with Dr. Kissinger Goldman, author of Dr. Goldman's Guide to Effective Patient Communication, right here in episode 450 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is about you. It's about your personal and professional development, your career in healthcare, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of medicine, healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, the first thing you can do is just share episodes or share the show with anyone who you think might enjoy it or learn something from it. And if you'd like to leave a rating and review, that helps a lot too. And you can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or Spotify. Or like I said, just share the show with anyone. And I appreciate it so much. If you want to become a patron and support the show, you can give as little as $2 a month at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. I appreciate my patrons so very much. If you'd like to give, let's say $10 a month, I'll send you a copy of two of my books in the mail. You actually get something by the USPS, which is very rare these days. And I just appreciate you all being here with us today, no matter how you'd like to be here and support us. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com in the drop-down menu labeled podcasts. And of course, the show notes and all the links that we talk about will be in any app where you happen to be listening. Like I said, we're here with Dr. Kissinger Goldman. He has written a book called Dr. Goldman's Guide to Effective Patient Communication. And Kissinger, this is so important as a topic for me personally and for so many people right now. So the first question I want to ask of you is, what are your feelings about the state of the patient experience in American healthcare in the 21st century? First, uh, let me start by thanking you for inviting me to this podcast. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, I look forward to our discussion. Now, with respect to your question, uh, I'll answer it this way. So I've been a consultant uh, and patient experience for at least 10 years. If you include my directorship position, Uh, at the Memorial Healthcare System. So I've been in that space for the past 10 years. What I can tell you is that for the past 10 years, what I've noticed is that I've been teaching healthcare providers, nurses, doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, what they should have learned in medical school, in nursing school, in PA school. So the communication that is needed to engage patients and their families effectively, whether it is verbal or nonverbal communication, is not being taught to those healthcare providers. That's the state of patient experience today, unfortunately. And that's what prompted my book, because when you notice that you're teaching the same thing over and over to the same people over and over, you come up with a conclusion that, okay, there is a problem, so how do I help fix that problem? And that's how this book came about, an attempt to fix the lack of training and effective communication in healthcare providers. Hmm. Very interesting. Now, I've never gone to medical school. I've gone to nursing school twice. And, you know, nursing 
nursing is more, it feels sort of more uh, touch oriented, more intimate, you know, nurses sure. spend more time with patients just by dint of what they do on a day-to-day basis. Definitely. And we did talk about communication, but we didn't have a course on it. Like we didn't, we didn't delve very deeply into it in my memory. And what I understand is that there aren't any courses on it in most medical schools either. And I mean, healthcare, healthcare is about the patient, right? Like it's really about the patient or it's supposed to be. Yes, sir. So what is it about the culture of, let's say, medical education? What is it about the culture there that kind of precludes any conversation about like how to communicate with your patients? Why, why is that not part of the the zeitgeist in medical education, for instance? That's a great question. So uh, I'm going to use myself as an example. So okay. when I, when I applied to medical school uh, in 1999, um, and I received interviews. And I was interviewed by deans of medical schools, and I got into medical school. The first two years of medical school were primarily theoretical, right? So they teach you about the anatomy, pathology, pharmacology, um, um, you know, the heart, the lungs, you know, the basic theoretical part. And then you shift into the clinical years, where you're pushed into uh, the patient's room, but there's a there was a, a a something missing there because you cannot take a healthcare provider from a theoretical setting and without any training drop them into a clinical setting. And that's what happens to most medical schools. They look for um, um, students or potential providers who have the right acumen, right? Who are intelligent, who have the right GPA, right? But there's no mechanism to look for a potential student that has the right verbal skills, the empathy, the, the, and can provide sympathy to patients, right? There, I, was, I was never asked that at my interview, right? That was never assessed. What was assessed was my capacity to uh, essentially memorize, right, and pass a test. That's what is being assessed initially because you take a test, the MCAT, you get an interview. You have, you, of course, you get great MCAT scores, you get an interview, and then you're in, okay? Yes, they look at your ancillary activities, your volunteerism, your this and your that, but ultimately your grade, which is a reflection of how well you can memorize and pass a test, is the primary factor that is used and allowing you into medical school. And as I said, in medical school, and when I went to medical school, there was there was no course in communication, effective communication, none, until I went and I got my MBA. So I did a dual oh. degree program, a DO mm-hmm. MBA program. So mm-hmm. my first communication course was at St. Joseph University, where I was getting my MBA, not at my medical school. How fascinating and disturbed and disturbing. It is. Actually. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's it is disturbing. And the thing is, you know, what I've learned over the years, over the last, I'd say the last 10 years, is that emotional intelligence and relational intelligence can actually be learned. Like, you know, we talk about how the IQ doesn't really change, though there's actually now because of neuroplasticity and discoveries about it, they feel that maybe IQ can actually change over the course of your life. It can be increased. Mm-hmm. Sure. But for sure, your inte- your emotional quotient can change and your ability to relate to people can change. Now, if you have some level of sociopathy or something, of course, it's going to be a little harder, right? Because you don't read social cues, et cetera. But for your average person who is, you know, emotionally intact, maybe has some trauma history, but you know, they're we're capable of empathy and that, you know, your emotional intelligence, your ability to empathize, your ability to learn how to communicate effectively is very much an area of 
potential growth, like incredible and, and, growth. Absolutely. And I can testify to that having mm-hmm. been in the field for the past 10 years and having been the teacher, quote unquote, of for other healthcare providers. So people can learn this. People uh, should learn this. And as, as you said, they can learn it, but it's a matter of them um, um, not just willing to do it, but somebody else pointing out to them that, okay, you are deficient in this particular aspect of your interaction with the patient and their families, mm-hmm. which is what I do in, in my system. So part of my job is, yes, to train and to onboard new providers, absolutely. But the other part of my job is to keep track of the performance of current providers. How are they engaging with the patients and their families? Is there something missing? And once I identify whatever that is missing through reading patient comments and talking to patients and engaging patient comments, then I go to that provider, right? And I provide the feedback from the patient and I address that defect. But Mm -hmm. the key is to keep track of it Number one. Number two, being able to effectively guide that provider who's deficient in that aspect of effective communication. And then you have the recipe for success. Mm, Okay. So here's a question for you. Sure. Based on your, you know, one-on-one experiences and group experiences and what you're observing over these last 10 years, What are some of the main deficiencies that you feel like are sort of common threads for many providers? What do you see? Sure. That's a very easy easy question. Communication. Okay. And and, and communication is a large umbrella, right? And under that communication umbrella, there are subsets, right? They're nonverbal, right? And Mm -hmm. there's verbal. So I can tell you invariably, one, whenever there's a complaint regarding a provider, it has to do with one of these subsets, right? Either it was the provider did not appear to be interested, right? Nonverbal communication. Uh, the provider did not examine me, an- another popular one, right? So hmm. yes, you're familiar with that one. So Yes. Um, or, or something that was said, right? The tone did not come out right right? Hmm. The writer said something and it was accusatory. It was judgmental, right? Mm -hmm. So it's either verbal communication or nonverbal communication, whether it is during the interaction with the patient while in 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 the ER or in the hospital or the clinic or after when the patient calls about a complaint of some sort, something that didn't go right, something that was missing, again, a breakdown in communication. So communication is the main theme. Mm -hmm. And medicine and nursing and healthcare in general, like we said a few minutes ago at the beginning, it's about the patient. Like if it wasn't for the patients, we wouldn't have a job, first of all. That is correct. Mm -hmm. And our whole goal is to heal, help, um, you know, put back together or otherwise resolve physical, emotional, psychological, et cetera, problems that are presented in the exam room or Mm -hmm. in the ER or wherever we happen to be, right? So, you know, I'll I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So a few months ago, I saw a neurologist and it was a virtual visit. And you know, he, I could tell he was pretty focused on the computer and I could tell he, he'd never been trained, which actually most people have not even thought about this. He never really looked at the camera. So even though it's, it's artificial, if like I'm looking in the camera at you right now, I'm not looking at your face on the screen. So there's this feeling that the person's looking at you and that we could talk for hours about this whole like zoom world and you know what it does and doesn't do for us but he was somewhat engaged but not fully engaged when his notes were posted in my chart online and i read his notes he had obviously to me as a healthcare provider i know 
imported at a previous note. So mm-hmm. all these parts of the neurological exam were checked that they were done. Um, he said that my gait was normal, even though I walk with a cane currently. And wow. he even wrote that he had had me like touch both sides of my face and, you know, do all these different things he had me do, like raise my arms over my head. He never had me do any of those things. And I know you can assess a fair amount through conversation and watching someone over a screen, but there was there was actually false documentation, which was actually, you could say it's insurance fraud to some extent. Absolutely. You can so, say that. The next time he and I spoke, I actually called him on it gently and he promised to change the note because I said, I don't want my insurance company seeing a note saying that my gait's normal when I'm actually walking with a cane and a limp because I want them to approve an MRI, you know? So it's like, that's actually not very helpful for me if you tell me, tell them that my gait's normal and I'm neurologically intact. So, and my next experience was going to the ER with my father-in-law and he had abdominal pain and some other symptoms and the provider never touched him. She stayed at least five feet away from him. She didn't listen to his lungs. She didn't palpate his belly. Um, And I posted about these experiences on LinkedIn and that post blew up Mm -hmm. because Everybody and their mother was posting on there about how, oh my gosh, I've noticed how providers don't touch anymore. They don't do this. They don't do that. So in your experience, this is a long diatribe on my part, but I promised diatribes on the show. Um, <laughs> over the last 10 years, do you think that aspect has gotten worse or do you think it's just symptomatic of something that's been going on kind of like forever? I think that in, in some cases, it has gotten worse. And, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Um, there are um, groups out there that are under pressure to perform as rapidly as possible um, and minimize cost. So whenever there's money involved in in caring for a patient, you're going to have shortcuts, unfortunately. You're going to have shortcuts because the emphasis is no longer care for the patient. The emphasis is let me make sure that I either make money or save the company money. Okay. So yes, unfortunately, that is something that I've witnessed over the past 10 years. Absolutely where patients are complaining about the fact that doctors, healthcare providers no longer touch them, no longer examine them. Um, So it is a fact, it is happening, unfortunately. And that is why in my book, I talk about the importance of physical exam. And I explain why. I tell people that patients still expect a physical exam. Number one, because um, they don't know that uh, you may get the answer to their ailment without examining examining them. They don't know that, okay, number one. Number two, they, in some cases, are paying a lot of money for their healthcare. So when you don't examine them, right, they perceive that, you know, they're not getting their money's worth. Mm, so what am I here point. for? Good point, yes. What am I here for? Point number three, when you don't examine them, I think you lose that connection, that physical connection that is so important in healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. It is so important. You got to touch people. And I tell our residents this, I tell our nurses, all of our 166 doctors this, you got to examine patients. Even though, yes, sometimes I can determine what a patient has while they're in triage. I can do that at this point of my career. Absolutely. But guess what? Guess what? I still go in, even though I know you have appendicitis, I listen to your lungs, I listen to your heart, and I touch your belly. The other reason is from a clinical standpoint, sometimes people have multiple issues. Oh yeah, they come in with belly pain, but you listen to their heart and to their lungs, you hear something else that wasn't there before. 
So it gives you a clinical clue to look for other medical issues as opposed to just focusing on the right lower quadrant belly pain. Right. That's why it is important to examine a patient every single time. And as I said, unfortunately, um, I see that complaint more at other healthcare systems where I'm asked to come and consult. Thank God at our healthcare systems compared to 10 years ago, because that was a big issue 10 years ago, we are seeing less and less of it again, because uh, you know the point of emphasis on my end in the leadership of the healthcare system is we have to examine every single patient. That's I'm so glad to hear that. I'm glad your message has landed um, in your healthcare system, and I feel like yeah, there's 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 a patient satisfaction quotient if we could call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, you could use that if you want your next book, the um, PS, <laughs> the PSQ, right? Sure. The patient satisfaction quotient. You know, when a doctor even does a cursory exam, like a cursory exam doesn't take long. Listen to a few lung fields, listen to the heart, right? Palpate the belly, maybe check some lymph nodes in the neck or um, check a couple reflexes. There Mm -hmm. is a satisfaction the patient gets like, oh, the doctor's checking me out, right? And it gives you a sense of, of like, oh, I'm getting... Um, yeah, I'm getting my money's worth. I'm getting what I came here for. And I think if we, I had a conversation with another guest, not that many episodes ago about customer service, you know, he, you would be interested in this, this person's book, it's slipping my mind, the name of it at the moment, but he talked about hospitality because he came from a hospitality experience Mm -hmm. and also working at a cancer center. And he said that, you know, the hospitableness of, of the hospital, right? The, this patient service, we need to get back to this kind of service oriented orientation that makes people feel satisfied. Mm -hmm. And, and you're right. Like if someone comes in with right upper quadrant pain and you know, you do a quick, you do a, you listen to a few heart sounds and you're like, oh my God, this person has a mitral valve murmur, right? There like, you go. Did you know you have a murmur, Mr. Exactly. Smith? No exactly. No one's ever mentioned that to me before. There you well, go. let me refer you to our cardiologist. And guess there what? There you go. If you in the ER determine the patient has a mitral valve murmur, you refer them to cardiology, they're going to have an echo and an EKG and an exam. Mm-hmm. The hospital makes a little more money, actually. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The, right? the other point, the other point that I would add very quickly is I cannot tell you how many times patients have come into the ER and let's say they come in for cough, right? And um, I listen to their lungs, and what I like to do, and what I I ask our staff to do is to verbalize the physical exam. Tell people what you find, okay? Hmm. So, hey, sir, your lungs are clear. I know you came in for a cough. Your lungs are clear. Patients, as soon as I say that your lungs are clear, oh, can I go home? I just wanted to make sure that my lungs were clear. Oh, you don't want an x-ray? I think we need to get an x-ray. No, I'm good. If you say my my lungs are clear, I want to go home. Sometimes people just want that small amount of reassurance from someone examining them and saying, yes, you are okay. And they take that okay at face value and they run with it just by examining the patient. Mm -hmm. I really like that. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk, I mentioned it in my my story about the neurologist, but I want to talk about EMRs. I want to talk about telehealth because it's a real thing Sure, and and some other issues that your book raises that I think are so salient. So hang in there with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Kissinger Goldman, the author of Dr. Goldman's Guide to Effective Patient Communication, right here in episode 450 of The Nurse Keith Show. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Kissinger Goldman, author of Dr. Goldman's Guide to Effective Patient Communication. And Kissinger, the first thing I want to do is have you read a little passage from your book, because I think it's just great for us to hear a little bit of it in your voice. 
Sure. Uh, thank you so much, Keith. I'm happy to. Uh, this is on page 172 of the book. Uh, this is the um, lesson I learned from case number eight. Um, don't be quick to interrupt a patient. Patients do not know that physicians are programmed to look for specific clues when they talk. Those clues help our trained brains to create differential diagnoses. It is common for patients to talk about topics that are quote-unquote irrelevant during the medical interview. Those personal tidbits being shared help build rapport and give us a window into the patient's life. Remember, when a patient shares details about their lives, they are testing us to see if we are really listening so that they know that they can trust us. If they do not feel comfortable, they will not trust. If they don't trust you, they won't follow your treatment plan. Listen to your patients. The information they share will help us formulate medical and social plans to maximize our patient's outcome. It is always important to remember that social determinants of health can impact patient outcomes. The patient in this case study is likely suffering from social isolation and food insecurity. Paying close attention to what patients are saying can lead clinicians to involve social workers or other care teams. In this case, a listening resident could have prevented a poor outcome for that patient. Thank you. I remember that case study actually. And um, I think there's so much there in what you just read that, you know, of course, patients share lots of irrelevant stuff. Like, mm -hmm. My father-in-law, when we go to the doctor, he talks about all sorts of things. He has a little cognitive decline, but the thing is that, you know, you might get a clue that maybe there's, you know, a gun in the home that the person's anxious about, or, or, um, I don't know. There's so many things. I think Absolutely. food insecurity is a really good one, right? It is. And of course you want to get to the differential diagnosis and figure out what's wrong, but there's so many ancillary things. So when you talk to medical residents or doctors or nurse practitioners or PAs about this, does this land with most of them? Like, are, did the UC light bulbs go off? And do you also experience sometimes resistance to this sort of way of practicing? Great question. Great question. So 10 years ago, when we started this journey, there was um, some resistance, um, I would say, on the part of maybe 30 to 40 percent uh, of our staff. Um, some of our staff thought this would be a temporary uh, uh, flavor of the day. So, oh, yeah, uh, they're going to focus on patient experience for a month, six months, and then it's going to go away. So they were hoping anyway. Um, I'll tell you uh, what made the difference. Leadership. The fact that our leadership said, number one, this is going to be something that we do every single day. Number two, we, the leaders, are going to set the model. We're going to set the pace. We're going to be the example for the rest of the staff. But yes, there was some reluctance on the part of, of, of a percentage of our folks. Um, some of those folks over the years found themselves not in our system because they realized that this was not going to go away and they were not willing to make the effort to change and adapt to our new culture. Um, and But the majority of folks who are still with us, they change the way they engage patients to adapt an effective communication approach that included not just the patients, but their families. The other thing that we did, um, which I recommend to other healthcare systems, is to create an onboarding process. So if I'm interviewing Nurse Keith for a potential job, 
yes, I'm going to uh, ask you about your clinical acumen, how intelligent you are. I'm going to look at your resume, your recommendations and what have you. But one thing that I'm going to ask you is about, Nurse Keith, what are your views on patient experience? What are your views on engaging family members, on talking to them? Oh, I don't think they, they should be involved uh, in, in the care of the patient. I don't want to talk to family members. I don't want to talk to the patient. We have a problem. You're mm. not going to make it to our system. Mm. When you make it past the interview and we say, yes, you can come and work with us, we created an onboarding process specifically geared toward patient experience. So every single provider who joins our group in, the, in, in our healthcare system has to go through me, essentially. They have to go through my course. They have to have a discussion with me. And, and they have to have a clear understanding of what the patient experience expectations are on day zero. Not on day 100, not on day 360, on day zero. Wow. So when people come to Memorial Healthcare System, where you work in the ER, right? You're a board certified ER, ER physician. But that when people come through, they they have to actually go through your course, which absolutely. I, I wonder, I mean, how many other healthcare systems or hospitals have an onboarding around patient experience? Is this is it super, super rare, or do you feel like there's there's more and more that have something like this? My understanding, and, and don't quote me on this, mm-hmm. is that it is pretty rare. Because when I mention our program to other people, they look at me as if I have three heads. Hmm. So uh, my understanding is that it is pretty rare. Okay. And you also, you mentioned medical residents. I know you're assistant clinical professor at Florida Atlantic University mm-hmm. Medical School. Yes, sir. So are medical schools open to incorporating this? Like, Are there any medical schools maybe who are starting to create courses around patient communication and therapeutic communication? Is that a thing? It is. It, it, I think it is happening uh, in, in pockets. pockets. I can tell you, yeah, in pockets. So what I can tell you regarding my book and my online training specifically is that the Oklahoma uh, uh, Osteopathic Medical School will be utilizing my book in my online training for their third and fourth year medical students. So that, that much I can tell you. But yes, Great. this is becoming... Um, um, part of standard medical schools training. Is it where it ought to be? No, it's not there yet, but it is slowly getting there. So it's coming. Okay. It's coming. That's it's coming. good. Um, like I mentioned before the break, I, in my experience with that neurologist, you know, he it was a telehealth visit, which telehealth visits can be good. I've had some good experiences and I've had some mediocre experiences. And we also have the EMR issue and patients do talk about how their doctor never looked at them because he or she was focused on the computer in front of them, even Mm -hmm. in a face-to-face visit. So how do you integrate telehealth, which is now quite big since the pandemic, it really kind of blew up. And also how do you integrate this thing around Charting on the EMR, but also connecting with your patient at the same time, even when you're in the same room, how do you how do you teach that particular skill? Because it's actually a skill. It is. It is absolutely a skill. Great question again. So I'm going to start by saying that I'm, I'm not a big fan of computers in a patient's room. Mm-hmm. So if you come to my ER, I come and I see you, Keith, I'm not going to have a computer with me. Because Kissinger Goldman doesn't believe in that. But yes, I understand that uh, I am the minority at this point because a lot of folks like to have a, bring a computer in the room and short with the patient. So what I ask is the following, or what I teach is the following. If you're going to bring the computer into the room, tell the patient what you're going to be doing. Okay, Tell them, I'm listening to you, but as I'm listening to you, I am also documenting what you're telling me 
to ensure that I'm not missing anything. So explain in detail what you're doing, because otherwise they're going to presume that you're on Facebook, that you're mm. on LinkedIn and having mm. fun. Okay. So tell them what you do. Point number He's one. shopping on Amazon while I'm talking to him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So tell them what you're doing. Um, you mentioned eye contact. That's a big one that I asked the, the, our staff to do. You got to, at some point, veer away from the computer and eyeball that patient. Mm. Okay. Eyeball that patient. You got to look, look at them in the eye. Point number three, you have to sit close to the patient because if you're going to have the computer, you have to be able to touch him, touch, touch the patient. If you cannot touch the patient, then you're too far. Okay. If you're going to be using the computer. Because, and I've seen some, some, some guys do this in our ER, some of my colleagues, and they do a great job with it. They come in, some of our rooms have, have chairs and tables. So they put, they put the computer on the chair and the table next to the patient. And they sit down and they're typing and they're turning around and engaging the patient, engaging the family, and they're touching the patient. As you said, it is a skill. Mm-hmm. It is a skill, but it can be learned. It can be taught. So. Explain what you're doing, okay? Get close to the patient so you can touch the patient and engage the families. Keep your eyes not just on the computer, but, you know, turn around and take a look at the patient and engage the family members. So that's what I ask our staff to do. I love that. And at some point, at some point, I tell them, you got to close the laptop because at some point you're done because you're not going to do your whole chart in the room. You're going to do some of it, get the basic information, and ultimately you're going to step out of the room and finish your chart. So close the the the, the laptop and then turn around and engage people. Is there something else that you're concerned about? How? What else were you concerned about? Do you understand the process? Or if there's something that needs more explanation, such as you know, a CAT scan, MRI, de- delays, whatever it is, address it once you're done with the computer and close the computer. But you have to turn around and at that point engage the patient and their family. That's excellent. That's excellent. There's one thing I would add here, but I and I bet you all talk about this, is if the patient or family member starts to talk about something really personal, mm-hmm. like they start to tell a story, what I would do personally in that situation, I would close the cover of the laptop. It doesn't even have to close all the way and go to sleep, but you close it so that you're not engaged with it and you turn towards them with an open posture so they know you're really, really listening. Because if they're yeah. if if the trust has gotten to the point where they're willing to tell a story, mm-hmm. you know, about something like, oh, my son just died or something, you have to show that you're really listening if they go if they go there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. We talk about that all the time. Mm. Uh, uh, emp- uh, you, know, em- you know, being sympathetic, empathizing with patient. Absolutely. Somebody says, and that's part of the listing process, because a lot of times, uh, Keith, as you know, we're not truly listening, right? We're waiting for the other person to finish so we, so we can blurt out our own thoughts that we had as the patient was talking. So mm. I, I really ask the residents to really listen to the patient. If you, the truth is, and this is, this is great clinical advice, patients tell you what is wrong with them. Mm. Patients do. All you have to do, Keith, is just listen to them. That's all you have to do. They tell you what's wrong with them. And you'll pick it up if you listen to them. My pathology professor, professor in medical school, Dr. Fogel, his advice. He said, people will tell you what is wrong with them. And at the time when I was a medical student, I didn't get it. 13 years, 14 years into this, I understand it fully. Sometimes I go into a room, I don't talk barely because the family's engaging and talking. I just listen and I say, okay, here's the problem. I got it. I know what's wrong. But if I came in and within two seconds, I started talking and not listening to anybody, I would not have gotten anything. And I can tell you, and I tell the residents this, if you listen to the patient, you will save time. You will save time. You're not going to order studies, blood work that you don't need. So ultimately, it is a benefit to you, the provider. Absolutely. That's great. I love that. I love that. So another question I have for you along these lines is... um, 
we talked about we talked about engaging, but I wanted to go back to EMRs for a second, and I wanted to go back specifically to telehealth. So you and I mentioned just, I think in the first half, we mentioned about the camera on the, on the computer. Like you're on the left side of my screen, your face, but you feel like I'm looking at you if I look at the camera, which is at the upper middle of my screen, which is kind of weird because then I can't look at your face, which is, it's so unusual and so unnatural and so artificial. And right. I think that's an issue in telehealth because like the neurologist, I never felt like he looked at me. What I have seen recently technologically, and you might know about this, there's actually cameras now that you plug into your USB and it has a suction cup and you can actually stick it in the middle of the person's face on the screen. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you can put it on yep. their nose, actually, Absolutely. literally, and you Absolutely. can then look at them directly. So yep. do you also cover in your training when you talk about telehealth about you got to look at the camera because people need to feel like you're making eye contact. Uh, not not just in in telehealth, but in, in real live in person interactions, mm -hmm. right? So yes, absolutely. We talk about being present and getting a sense uh, to the patient that you are there with them, that you are interested in what they have to say, and the way to convey that back to the communication part that we talked about, right? The nonverbal communication. It is by looking at the patient, mm. leaning forward, mm -hmm. right? Leaning forward, look at them, right? And having the right facial expression, the right body language, the right posture, right? That again, nonverbal communication. So yes, we talk about, about that. Um, and, and I can tell you that for a resident, so I don't know how common this is, but our emergency medicine residency pro program has a patient experience course. That's my course. I love they that. have to take my course. They don't have a choice, right? And and um I can I can testify to the fact that yes, our soon-to-be graduating class, they've done well. They've done well. Um, they get patient feedback, right? We all the all the feedback that we get from calling our patients on a daily basis that mention a resident, that feedback gets sent to the resident, hmm. okay? That's Whether great. it's positive or negative. So I keep track of all that stuff. So um, it is working, um, but yes, it requires time. It requires uh, loving this topic, uh, obviously uh, being engaged, being present, uh, great leadership, uh, again, we're blessed to have a great leadership in in, in our uh, emergency rooms that let me do essentially uh, whatever I want from from a patient experience standpoint. So we're, we're very blessed. That's really wonderful. Yes, sir. Um, I also have a question for you. In doing this, in teaching this, especially to experienced physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, we're, we're talking about the patient experience, which is super important, right? Yep. However, with burnout, you know, um, compassion fatigue, people becoming unhappy with their careers, my curiosity is, in your experience over the years as you've been teaching this course and interacting with so many providers and seeing the change in feedback from patients, et cetera, how does the provider experience improve when they feel that, when the patient feels that they're connected with the provider. How does the provider feel about the nature of their practice and their career? Simply put, they love it. Mm -hmm. They love it. Okay. Uh, I remember um, one particular colleague 10 years ago. He was my, there's always a challenge one, right? Or two or three. He was my personal challenge 10 mm -hmm. years ago because patient experience, patient communication, he did not believe in that stuff. It was a bunch of hoo-ha for him. He, he didn't care for that stuff. Okay. Um, so, it, so over the years, um, yes, um, other people adopted um, what we were selling and uh, put it into their own practice. He was reluctant, reluctant. And then after a few years, he changed drastically, drastically. Hmm. 
he adopted a lot of the techniques that I suggested. And then one day he came to me, and this is, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago. He came to me and said, thank you. I said, why? I said, thank you for imparting those little tidbits of, of, of information or of, of pieces of if, uh, how to effectively communicate with patients with me. And I said, really? He said, yeah. It changed the way I view patients. It changed the way I interacted with patients. He, to be frank with you, he was very bitter 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Very, very bitter, hmm. um, not happy with healthcare in general, not happy with emergency medicine, not happy with a lot of things. But over the past few years, there's been a drastic change in this person, drastic change, because he took the little bit that I wanted him to change and applied it into his own practice, and he saw a notable, measurable change. So it benefited the patient, of course, but it also benefited him. That's lovely. The other point I'll, I'll make very quickly is part of the reason that I, why I wrote this book is because I realized that it is harder to change doctors, nurses, PAs who've been practicing for 15, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. That information that is in, in the book that I'm, teaching them 20 years later, they should have learned 20 years, 30 years earlier in medical school. So that's part of my hope that people are going to look at the book and say, let's incorporate, if not all of it, but some of it into medical training so that this information not just benefits the patient, but it benefits the healthcare provider. That's great. I really, I love that. I love that. And I wanted to ask you um, on, on another note, have, have you ever seen the film Wit, W-I-T, with Emma no, Thompson? I have it, not. It was a play. It was then made into a film. It is an amazing film, and I highly recommend it. And Emma Thompson is an incredible British actress. In the play, she is a uh, famous uh, professor of English literature, and she's diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer. And the only characters in the play are the doctor, who's a researcher, the medical resident, the nurse, and the patient. Mm -hmm. And it's all about how this doctor basically railroads her into a clinical study for a drug that's likely to kill her. But the medical resident and the doctor never listen to a word she says. And the only person who listens is the nurse. And the nurse witnesses what's happening and is relatively powerless to change anything that's going on. And it's a very, very powerful lesson in patient communication or the lack thereof. And I think you might really enjoy that. And I think some of your residents or or students might really get a lot out of it. It's kind of painful, but it's also really powerful. So I just wanted to mention that. It's a great Thank film. you for mentioning it. Thank it's you. It's a really, really wonderful film. It's I think it's a very important film. And before we we go, there's four questions I always ask all of my guests. Are you game for a little lightning round of questions? I'm game for anything. Okay. So <laughs> anything. the first question is, how do you, Kissinger Goldman, define success, either personally or professionally? I'll, I'll answer personal first. Mm-hmm. When we uh, f- first started talking today, um, before we got on the podcast, you asked me how my day was. And I told you that my wife is around and my kids are healthy. That is success to me. Hmm. That is it. Um, I've been with my wife for uh, 23 years at this point. Um, she's a physician as well. Um, she's she's uh, very supportive, loving um, wife and, and and mother. I'm I'm very very blessed. A very brilliant, smart. She's a she's a CMIO for a healthcare system. Um, my kids, my three boys, 
Um, I get a chance to uh, interact with them uh, every day. Uh, I get a chance to uh, cook um, for them, make breakfast, make dinner, uh, be present at their games. My oldest one is into is a, on the basketball team, varsity basketball team. My middle one is a golfer, uh, and my youngest one plays basketball as well. So, personal success to me is is very simple. It is it is about family. Hmm. It's about family. It's about my wife. It's about my kids. My mom, my in-laws, family. That's it. That's the success. Um, professional success. I, I get it every day. I get it every day by my engaging patients. There, uh, when when I come to work, uh, people think I'm I'm high on something. <laughs> what did he take today? Right? Because because I'm excited. I'm excited to to interact with people and try to solve some of their concerns, medical concerns, that is. Um, and if I'm able to help, even if it's a little bit, uh, somebody else, uh, somebody at work, uh, whether it's a patient, by the way, or a coworker, then to, to me, that's success. Um, I help you, I diagnose you with a heart attack and I take care of it right away, a stroke and I take care of it right away, diverticulitis, appendicitis, whatever it is, and I take care of it right away. I hold on to those, even though the patient may never come back and say thank you, by the way. They may never come back and say thank you. But I hold on to those as a reminder of what I signed up for, of what medicine is about, right? It's about helping people um, with their ailments and uh, giving them a chance to go back um, and live their their best life, uh, whatever that is. So, so that's success to me from a professional standpoint. You are obviously a highly relational person like I am. So you, you really focused there on relationships and, and, you know, kind of like communication in a sense. So yeah, you're, you're definitely relationships have a lot of meaning for you. I can tell. Speaking of relationships, my second question is, is there one person who you could pinpoint who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead, famous, or someone in your personal life. Is there somebody? My mom. Your mom. Tell, us, mom. tell us about your mom. That's very, very easy. So um, I'm from Haiti. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Haiti. I spent 18 years in Haiti. My father passed away when I was 11. My mom, at the time, did not have any job. She was dependent a hundred percent on my father. So when my father passed away with three kids, my mom panicked. She came to the States and she left her three kids behind and she started working and sending money to Haiti, working two, three, sometimes four jobs um, and sending money to Haiti. And ultimately she brought my siblings over. And ultimately, when I graduated from high school, I came to the States, to, to Brooklyn. So when I got to Brooklyn, my mom had another daughter uh, here from another marriage. Um, so she had four kids. And she was still the main caretaker of the four kids. So she was working day and night. and her expectations were were very simple. You got to go to school. You got to go to school and you got to cook for yourself Hmm. because I'm working two, three jobs. I don't have time to cook. Yes. You know, whenever there was a holiday, you know, she would make this lavish dinner, but overall she was too busy to cook. Oh, the other requirement is I cannot pay for your school. I cannot pay for college. So you're going to have to work. So I work throughout college. So my, as a testament to my mom's hard work, uh, yes, I'm a physician, great. Uh, my siblings, two of them are uh, lawyers. Uh, one of them is a business owner. So um, my mom is definitely, definitely the person I look up to. I love that. That's lovely. That's beautiful. And um, you know, you and I have had conversation that I have actually have Haitian family members. My yep. niece yep. married into a, married a Haitian man. So I have connections there. And um, 
that's that's really beautiful. I appreciate that a lot. The third question, the penultimate question is, is there a book or a movie, not necessarily absolute favorite, but just one that comes to mind that's impacted either the way you think, the way you live your life, the way you approach your work, just something that holds, you know, meaning for you? A book or a movie? Um, What comes to mind? For some reason, the Inception comes to mind. The Inception. No, Inception. The oh, movie Inception. with Yeah, have you seen this movie with Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I, I don't know why, why it comes to mind, mm-hmm. but it, it, it just rushed into my mind. Hmm. And and part of it uh, um I if, again if, I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh it's about just to give you a very brief synopsis of it, it's about the um Planting an idea in somebody's mind, and and seeing what happens once that idea is planted in that person's mind, in the vehicle that is used to plant that idea into that person's mind is dreams, hmm. sleeping. Hmm. So it's it's a fascinating concept, um, and I, I think. Uh, the part that I like the most is the idea part, planting the idea into somebody's mind and see what happens once you plant that idea into somebody's mind. And maybe it's the teacher in me because it's what you do my- for a living, Kissinger. <laughs> <laughs> so th- I, I, I'm thinking that's why it came to mind because yeah. it's, it's about teaching, right? And, and seeing what happens once you insert whatever concepts into a, a person's mind. So Inception came to mind. Well, I'm going to watch it. I, I like Leonardo DiCaprio too, so I'm, I'll it's watch it. It's a great it. movie. Yeah. It's a great movie. Okay, last question. If you were named king of the world tomorrow, what's the first action you would want to take as king of the world, bearing in mind that you would have ultimate power and you would eventually be able to do everything you wanted? But what would be like your first thing you'd want to do for your subjects? Very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I would make primary care available to everyone. Awesome. Everyone. Why do I say that? Well, very simple. 80% of folks who come to the ER are discharged. 80%. So what does that tell you? Well, that tells you that Technically, they did not have any emergency that warranted admission to the hospital. So technically, they could have been seen by a primary care doctor. So I would make primary care um, accessible to everybody. I would change the way we pay primary care doctors. I would change the way we uh, primary care doctors pay for their training uh, and forgive all their loans as long as they remain in primary care. I think that the way to fix healthcare is the only way is through primary care and ensuring people are able to prevent diseases um, before they end up in the ER, in the hospital. From, from my standpoint, when somebody ends up in the hospital, in the ER, we have failed them. Mm-hmm. We have failed them. Our system has failed them because they should have been seen by a primary care doctor. And that primary care doctor should have enough time to ensure that their diabetes is controlled, their cholesterol is controlled, their blood pressure is controlled. All the preventative stuff that needs to be done is done so that they don't end up in the ER in the longevity, their life expectancy, instead of shrinking as it is in the U.S., it is extended. Mm. You'd be a great king. (laughs) all hail king kissinger all right thank you i love it okay i want to add an extra question here sure because we just mentioned haiti and i have a stake in in the the wellness and the the um the experience of people in that country yep um you are the chief strategy officer of primary care Haiti, a nonprofit. Could you I briefly am. just tell us about that? Because I feel like that's an important part of your life that harkens back to your origins, 
right? So tell us a little bit about primary care Haiti, speaking of primary care. Sure, sure. Um, I think that every healthcare person, whether you're a doctor, nurse, PA, nurse practitioner, needs to have an outlet to reset their psyche. Um, and some of us like hiking, some of us like basketball, some of us like whatever it is. Uh, I like teaching. My wife and I, we enjoy teaching. Um, what we do in healthcare is too physically and emotionally demanding for us not to have an outlet outside of healthcare that resets us mentally and physically. So when my wife and I, seven years ago, were deciding what to do in Haiti, my wife had been going to Haiti. By the way, my wife is not Haitian. Um, but my wife had been going to Haiti for, I would say, maybe three years before we started on our nonprofit. She used to go to the central part of Haiti and help with uh, cervical cancer diagnosis and treatment. She brought me to Haiti with her, uh, I think, on the third that third year, and uh, she asked me to do a course on uh, CPR for the staff, which I did. Of course, I loved it. And then we came back, and we we, we sat down in our kitchen. And we had a discussion uh, about how to best help Haiti. Uh, so remember, I had lived in Haiti. Um, I've seen what nonprofits do in Haiti, for better or for worse. So I told mm -hmm. my wife, if you want to go to Haiti and do the same thing that has been done by other nonprofits, i.e., you go in, you give a little medication for a week, you check blood pressure for a couple of days, then you come, you go back to the States. I have zero interest, zero interest in doing that. But my wife is so smart. She said, no, I don't want to do that either. So of course we both like teaching. So we figured what, let's focus on teaching. So what does Haiti need? We lucked out because one of our friends who had been practicing in the U.S. for years, Dr. Moise, had recently moved to Haiti. So we spoke with her and we asked her, what are the needs from an educational standpoint? She listed them. She said, yeah. We need C, uh, 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 teaching in, in, in CPR, in ACLS, in BLS, in PALS, in ACLS. We said, great. How about ultrasound? Yeah, that too. How about how to diagnose and treat cervical cancer? They said, yes, hmm. that too. So we created Primary Care Haiti, and we started talking to friends and colleagues. I, I kid you not. The moment we told those colleagues that we were going to Haiti to teach, people said, I'm in. You're going to teach? I'm in. Sign me up. We have over 200 volunteers in our group, ultrasound techs, cardiologists, primary care doctors, respiratory therapists, all kinds of people who are willing to go and share their, what they've learned over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Dr. Moise's job is to identify reputable organizations, reputable hospitals, healthcare systems that are in need, number one. Number two, we have a train-the-trainer program. So when we go to Haiti and we teach CPR, we ensure that we teach a trainer, somebody who's going to get a little more training, to ensure that when Kissinger Goldman and Jennifer Goldman go back to Florida, the training continues. So they are not dependent on us. So that is what we do in Haiti. We put together trainings, CPR, ACLS, ACLS, ultrasound, um, cervical cancer diagnosis and treatment. We have not been to Haiti in two years. Uh, That's not true. I'd say three years, 2020. But even though we have not been in Haiti, in spite of us going in, in Haiti today, the training still goes on because of our train-to-trainer model. That's wonderful. I love that. That's really great. I'm going to tell my my family members about it. And if anyone wants to volunteer with you or donate, can they go to primarycarehaiti.com? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's wonderful. And and if people want to buy your book, they can all they can find it on Amazon, of course. Doctor Goldman's Guide to Effective Patient Communication. You can also go to kissingergoldman.com. And then Facebook and Instagram, you are 
Well, on, on Facebook, you're Kissinger P. Goldman. And on Instagram, you are Kissinger Goldman and also on Twitter. And we'll have your LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. So Kissinger, this has been amazing. It's been fun and informative and inspiring. And thanks for being here and gracing the airwaves and um, sharing your stories with us. It's been really wonderful. Don't thank me. Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate the opportunity. I look forward to engaging with you, whether it's in person or another podcast. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show, episode 450. The show notes can be found at nursekeith.com and on the app where you're listening. If you need personalized holistic career coaching, check out nursekeith.com and Nurse Keith Coaching. Mention the show, Nurse Keith Show, and you get 10% off your first coaching package and you become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith if you would like to support the show in that particular manner. We are members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com and we are adroitly produced by the inimitable Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote, one of my very favorites by the musician Robert Fripp, may my living honor my parents, may my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Kissinger Goldman saying arrivederci from Florida, from the beautiful state of sunny Florida. Thank you, Kissinger. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side. Mm-hmm.